coming up on Art Palace. But as it happens, this is the earliest mention of Art Palace of the West that I've been able to verify. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Jeff Edwards, the museum's archivist and records manager at the Mary R. Schiff Library and Archives. So how did you end up at the art museum? It's quite a convoluted path. I actually started out as an archaeologist back in the UK, specifically Egyptology. Okay. But I kind of specialized myself out of a job because, you know, there's not that much call for Egyptologists. Right. Um, Fun as it was to study and to go and get to to dig in Egypt, Mm -hmm. um, I kind of found myself not having a job and I ended up, you know, going into doing something which was fine but not exactly what I wanted and I kind of rethought about how, you know, what I was going to do and I kind of realized I enjoyed the sort of filing side of things as it were, like going, kind of going through the old papers and trying to okay. sort them out and make them more easily accessible and I thought, hang on, I think there's a job that involves something like that and that's when I kind of looked into archives and I eventually retrained to become an archivist and so i started working in the uk mm-hmm. in the in archives over there um i eventually moved over here um i followed my wife over she was over in the uk working and i followed her back so you um, met you met there she was she just there for work or study or she was she was teaching um she was teaching in london where i was living mm-hmm. um she was actually teaching english um and <laughs> that's usually not the case, right? Like, I mean, you hear that story all the time. Like, I was in, you know, Thailand te- <laughs> teaching English, but it's like, you know, I think they've got it under control. <laughs> so, so we can, we just kind of our paths crossed, and you know, eventually I followed her back over here. Spent a while in Indiana working at the State Archives in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, then we moved down to this part of the world she's from fort thomas originally so oh, okay. we ended up back down here and i sort of cast around for opportunities and i was volunteered at several local you know museums and mm. archives and the, mu- the the art museum was one of them um so i started off volunteering eventually my predecessor left the position and i was able to i was able to slide on in there and i've been here since 2013 now Nice. So, over five years. Are you still passionate about Egyptology in any way, or is it just sort of totally gone at this point? Oh, no. I st- I'm still really interested, you know, in what's going on. I keep my eye on the field. I'm still yeah. friends with people who actually did manage to find employment in that world. So, I kind of, I do keep keep my eye on what's going on, you know, the latest discoveries. And, and I, you know, I always look back on the time that I got to go to dig there with great sort of fondness. Mm. It was a, you know... It was quite a harsh, harsh sort of month at a time. I, I went for a few years in a row and spent a month out on the um, Egyptian coast, quite near the Libyan border, digging up a fort from the time of Ramesses II. Wow. But it was it was quite a shock to the system. It was quite a hard, <laughs> quite a hard just month. Physically just physically Yeah, physically in the, you know, the heat and the yeah. toiling in the in the trenches. I mean, that's what you see in movies, right? Is, is, mm-hmm. is, is that part of it, the dig? But then you kind of forget, like, oh, yeah, that has the potential to be also the most, like, grueling part of the job. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Was, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, there were a group of students uh, from Liverpool University. I was one of them. It was good sort of, you know, world-building experience and getting to see what, seeing what it was like to live in that part of the world. You said you did other archivist jobs before this, right? Mm-hmm. You said, um, were you working for other institutions as old as this one or older or? Back in the UK, the place where I worked principally was the Glamorgan Archives, which was in based in Cardiff in Wales. Yeah. They are, I guess it's the closest equivalent 
equivalent here is a, a state archive. So oh, okay. it kind of it holds everything really. So official records, personal records, business records. It's a bit a bit of everything. And they were they were probably it was probably founded about the same time as the art museum here. Oh, okay. But the actual records they go back to you know medieval right. times. So <laughs> you know the actual institution same sort of age, but the actual records they go back much you know, older. Yeah, a thousand years or so. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit different coming to work here kind of you have to adjust your perspective a bit on yeah when you're looking at something like that does the sort of scale of time affect what is considered important yes i think it does anything that survives you know a thousand years gains some kind of right. importance even if it's just you know the medieval equivalent of a you know, a shopping list or a right. or a text message, just some <laughs> you know, just something transitory and not terribly significant in the grand scheme of things. But the fact that it's survived, mm-hmm. you know, that many years um, gives it, you know, a certain a certain cachet. Yeah. I guess. So you've been working on a book about the art museum, mm-hmm. um, and you brought a copy of it here. Um, it's just called Cincinnati Art Museum. Yes, we <laughs> we didn't go too, we didn't think too much about the too crazy, no, yeah, no, we, too crazy a title. But this is a part of the uh, certain. Uh, well, you you describe it more because you'll you'll do a better job. Okay, it's published by Arcadia Publishing. It's one of their Images of America series. So. Mm-hmm. You, there are hundreds of titles in the series. Right. You see them everywhere. Sort yeah. of every you know community or aspect of you know a town's history seems to have a copy. The zoo here has got one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's one on the Cincinnati um, brewing history. All those sort of topics. Right. And I don't quite know how they came to contact us, but they did get in touch and say, "Would you like to do one?" Mm-hmm. And we said, "Oh yes, please," because <laughs> because in the archives we've got some fantastic images of the museum, of the art academy, everything that's happened over here over the past 140-odd years. Um, and we're always keen to try and you know make those more widely available, make them accessible to people. So this seemed like a great way to do it. Um, the book is primarily photographs. It's 275 images, I think. Mm-hmm. They've each got a little caption that goes with them that tells a story. It's basically... It's basically a photographic history of the of the museum from back from the eighteen eighties to so very recently to last year, basically. Oh, nice! Did you have to write all those captions? Yes, yes. that's yeah. why. Yeah, that's why this is your book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you look at them, the captions, you know, they're they're not very long. They're not more than you know a couple of hundred words. Right. But that was part of the that was part of the difficulty. Absolutely, because, because there were very strict editorial guidelines as to how long each caption could be and mm-hmm. um, some of them there was so much i wanted to say i had to kind of be quite brutal in what sure. i could and couldn't say yeah succinct writing is yes, very challenging it is. you I, know it's like it, it's why ma- writing a good label is hard mm-hmm. too. i empathize a lot more with the yeah. curators when they have to write their labels now i kind of wanted to i wanted to make sure i included you know the important the big the big events the important of parts of our history but i also wanted to kind of get in as much of the sort of small details and the you know the more personal touches that i came across as i was researching it um so it's you know it's a mixture of you know the big events in the museum's history the the opening the various wings and Mm. some of the major exhibitions we've had over the years but it also tells the stories of some of the individuals who've you know been part of the staff over the years um tries to it tries to put the museum in the context of the community and show it's not just you know a big building full of pictures or statues it's been having classes for children here since the you know since the early 20th century part of the founding mission of the museum was to bring art to the community here so that's what i've tried to is that actually what's on the cover uh the image is one of those classes yeah um like i said back in the 1920s we started holding classes at the museum for children free saturday morning classes Mm -hmm. um so anyone could come along and the cover image shows um, one of those classes from the 1920s the kids sitting on the the original front steps of the museum which are now buried behind um the what is the adams emery wing the where the cincinnati wing is now Mm -hmm. but you know those those classes people flocked in from miles around to come and come and be part of them there you know the kids would walk for a couple of hours to get here 
And I think it was, I think they continued at least some variation of that for quite a while because I've talked with older people who tell me, oh yeah, I used to take Mm -hmm. classes here as a kid. So I know it it continued in, you know, for a while. Oh yeah. I mean, I think they went through, I think they went through in that form until maybe the early eighties. Okay. But yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people who even decades later still talk very fondly of their time coming up to the museum on the on the streetcar for oh yeah for the Saturday morning art classes it shows you how important those kind of experiences are for people those people make a real connection with the building mm-hmm. and with the in with the museum and and it becomes a part of their memories and a part of what they connect to in the city and so it can have this really when it, when i hear people tell me about these classes that they took as children and they're now in their you know 70s mm-hmm. and you go oh wow this you remember it, this yeah. that's really interesting mm-hmm. it has an impact definitely yeah. I know that John Ruthven was one of the mm-hmm. one of the um I I met him in a an event a year or so ago and you know one of the first things that he mentioned on here and I I was the archivist here was to tell me about his experiences as part of these classes how much he enjoyed them and you know how he how fresh they were still in his memory and how they kind of you know helped helped make him the artist that he would later become Yeah were there any images or things you discovered while uh putting together the book that surprised you I did discover a lot of things about individuals who have worked here in the past that kind of, you know, was a revelation to find it. There's a lot of stories out there I'd like to be able to tell more of because there just wasn't room in the yeah. captions in this book. But, you know, our third director, uh, Walter Seipel, who mm-hmm. was here in the through the tw- 1920s, through the 1940s, I discovered a letter that somebody had written to us about him describing how he was a, he'd originally started off as an actor and he was sort of described as darkly brooding. And you can see that in the, in the <laughs> photographs. But um, he, he apparently found that life as an actor too, too tough, too sort of demanding on him. And he decided to retrain in art history and eventually ended up being the museum's director. And I'd like to, that's a story I'd like to follow up on a bit more. Yeah, um, that's a weird career path. <laughs> Definitely. I don't think a lot of people have followed that. I mean, I guess it, you do have to just do a total about face because it's like, not like you could really walk in as an actor and just start, <laughs> you know, like, well, I'm here for the museum director job. You know, you have to work your way back up. But that is interesting. Mm-hmm. And our first conservator was a guy by ne- by the name of Wilson Stamper. He started here in the 1930s. And he also he also taught at the art academy. Sort of, he split his time between conserving and mm-hmm. um, teaching at the academy. Um, during the Second World War, he was he um, became a photographer for the navy, and he was there during the um, fighting uh, for Iwo Jima. So mm-hmm. he was one of the photographers there who um, you know recorded images of that. Um, I don't think he recorded the, the, fa- flag, the yeah. flag raising, but he was one of the one of um, one of the people there recording the fighting. Um, and you know, there's so many little stories like that. I'd like to follow up on some of those. They might be blog posts in the future yeah. uh, where I can you know expand a bit more. Well, and I know you've seen uh, every once in a while you'll have a picture or something that will be sort of shocked by maybe the museum's behavior at times. That's true. That yeah. sort of like sanctioned things that were museum sanctioned events that you just look at and you go, well, we would never do that today. Then mm-hmm. that kind of stuff always makes me laugh. Yeah. There are quite a few photographs of, you know, people sitting around in the galleries, smoking, drinking. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the primary culprits is Philip Adams, who was, who was a director from the 1940s through to the um, 1970s. He, he always seems to have had a, a cigarette in his hand in all of the photos um so yeah that was not something that i think <laughs> we would condone today i mean it's just sort of so funny because you would imagine the conservator you just mentioned would just be thinking like <laughs> stop it yeah. you're, or maybe they're just like well i've got a job you know yeah. <laughs> like, job <Yeah>. security <laughs> yeah. yeah there are several photographs of him sitting around sort of casually leaning against you know <laughs> the plinths of statues or with a cigarette in his hand chatting away or yeah 
He yeah. seems to have been quite a character, was Phil Adams. Um, I feel like there was, uh, I saw a picture one time you maybe showed us of a sort of large banquet or something that was set up also in uh, one of the galleries in the Dutch gallery, maybe. Mm-hmm. Was that something too, where they like actually served food? And oh, yeah. In yeah. I think, I'm sure they did it multiple times, but, yeah. you know, I think when it opened, they set out a big lavish you know, table with right. elaborate, you know, silverware and they've had a banquet in there. And I think, I think that was one of the main kind of sort of event spaces of the day. Right. Um, yeah. That's not something I think. <laughs> no, we would definitely not <laughs> would be not allowed do that to do anymore. that anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there'd be people who would really love to do oh, that. I know, it'd be a great space, I'm sure. I'm sure there'd be a lot of weddings who <laughs> yeah. would be delighted if you, we would let them have a, you know, a, a dinner in there. That would be uh, something. <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd like us to know about the book? It's basically arranged chronologically. So mm-hmm. it covers, like I said, the entire history of the museum from the, you know, from its founding through to a brief kind of resume of the last 20 years or so. Right. The focus is, you know, the historical images um, with a, a final chapter that brings it up to date. Um, but it also does... There's also a chapter dedicated to the Art Academy because we have a lot of their records mm. um, down in the archives yeah. because we were associated so long. We still retain a lot of materials relating um, to the Academy, to the students, photographs, student records, that sort of thing. Um, so there's a, a chapter in there which contains some some really nice shots classes back from the 1880s and um of the beaux-arts balls there are some fantastic shots of those from back in the day i really enjoy putting it together um and i it's the quality of the images you know it's never looked better they've 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 come out really well so i'm really pleased with how it looks i only know of one mistake so far (laughs) (laughs) it was an honest mistake I went by the information that was on the back of the photo and it only came to light afterwards that the way the name was spelt was wrong. Oh, so. wow. Okay. That's, <laughs> I think that's quite forgivable. Yeah. I think that's so, too bad. But it was still frustrating. Yeah. I, I always have a lot of questions about the building. People ask a lot about the building's history mm-hmm. and people are pretty fascinated by the just the architecture itself and seeing it in its sort of different configurations over the years is, mm-hmm. is, I think, really interesting to people. So I'm sure people will just get a kick out of just that alone. You get used to even seeing certain phases of the building, and then every once in a while I'll see a new picture of it, like, in some new configuration where, like, oh, this wing was built, but this one wasn't yet, and it's taken from this angle I'd never seen before. You go, oh, whoa, that's really crazy looking. Like, I would never imagine, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just really interesting to to see the space that you walk through so often um, and how different it, it used to be. Yeah. It, it, there is a handy diagram at the front of the book which shows um, the, the layout of the museum and each of the wings mm-hmm. and when it was added so you can trace how it evolved. Um, and there are plenty of photographs that go through that show how it was originally just, you know, the original building standing alone on the top of the hillside. And then you can trace through the additions of the various... Yeah. wings over the years and you can see you can see the adams emery wing go up in the 60s and the original facade disappear which is something i wish i could have seen in the flesh as it were yeah because it's, it's you know it's a shame we lost we lost that at the time i think yeah well and it's that's something i always feel about like walking underneath the building sometimes in the you know underground tunnels and things that we mm. use to get around is that sometimes the those edges of history are a little more obvious almost yeah. because they're not public spaces so they haven't been like sort of tidied up or polished mm-hmm. so you see those sort of weird joints and yeah. and things that butt up against each other and doors are like a really dead giveaway of like we don't tend to change doors out too often mm-hmm. in this place so you can you'll go through this really old wood door at one point and then you get to this sort of like 60s metal door and then you get to like one of these newer wooden doors and they you can just tell by like the fixtures and stuff like roughly when these were put in and you yeah. kind of go oh okay this part i'm in this part of the building i'm in a really old part of the building now it- yeah you can see down in the ba- in the basement you can see the massive like blocks of the original building the huge sort of yeah. stone by the by the sort of um uh by one of the uh, old service entrances there where there's also the cobbled the cobbled floor down in yeah, the basement yeah, yeah, yeah. which was rigi- 
it was originally an open courtyard that was later covered over with galleries above but that oh. was that was um where they used to bring in deliveries of you know coal and whatnot for because it used to be a you know used to be coal-fired boilers here until the until the 40s at least yeah so, you know the coal dust used to be things were still being you know cleaned of coal dust well into the you know wow. 80s 90s i think that's crazy but yeah those little sort of echoes are still down there and when you know what you're looking for you can spot them yeah and it's like even in the galleries you know I, i've looked at so many pictures now I, I there's a bench up in one of the galleries a big old wooden bench um and i noticed you know i noticed it in one of the f- older photos with phil adams standing leaning against it and uh, you know now i just every time i go by it i just kind of like just gently touch it and i go good morning mr adams it's just one of those things i can't help you know there is there are you know there it's just one of those few things where there's a sort of a you know i can definitely see him standing there with it and it's just a kind of a little link to the past which you know which i enjoy when the cac was celebrating their um, big anniversary a year or two ago they were showing photographs of their original sort of space here in the, the building Mm -hmm. and I immediately recognized the staircase in it. And I was like, oh, I know where this is. Even though the the rest of it was all very unrecognizable, mm-hmm. there was still this like element that I was like, oh, I know where those stairs are. Like, yeah. You know, so it's so funny how as much as things change, there will be just like at least something in there that lets you identify where you are in the building. Yeah, those 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 stairs are, you know, one of the one of the few things you can trace, you know, way, way back. Because there are photos from you know very early on when they used to be the galleries of archaeology and ethnology mm-hmm. down there. So there were um, you know Native American artifacts and um, artifacts from Africa. Our the the collection that's now in our current African galleries, the Steckelman collection. It was down there in the basement originally. Interesting. So that was uh, that was open to the public. Yeah, you originally. could just walk down those stairs all the way down. Mm-hmm. And okay. it, was, it was wide open then. Now it's kind of you know the, the kitchen, the museum kitchen's down there, and they've yeah. sort of been subdivided. But back back then, it was open gallery space. But it makes sense too. I mean, we have to kind of fight to keep people from going down those stairs mm-hmm. which kind of is a sign that like their original intention was public mm-hmm. because there's not a lot other otherwise i mean just the other day i end up like i could see people lost down yeah. there <laughs> and i sort of you know they're just inv- they, they're inviting <laughs> yeah and i mean you can't go anywhere to no. i mean you have to have a key to get anywhere really exciting <laughs> anyway <laughs> so once you're down those stairs it's really we we say it's for volunteers and sta- you know because yeah. it's, it's not high security or anything so i but i ran into some folks just sort of looking <laughs> how did i get here? To, you know and they're trying to get out and this was when the front door was closed so i just was like oh here just come through here you'll you'll be out in you'll a second are, yeah. yeah so so yeah people still do wander down those stairs so that makes a lot of sense that they were not always off limits you no, know definitely not i mean after those galleries were moved it became there were classrooms down there for uh-huh. for um educational activities um and then the cac was down in that space mm-hmm. as well uh, so it's been used for a lot of things over the years and i think more there were galleries down there relatively recently where the where the staff sort of lounge eating area is now that was galleries until sort of relatively recently oh, really? until the 90s the okay. the damascus room was down in the basement at one point oh. um so hmm. yeah the, the you know every space has been used for you know multiple things over the years there's it's always changing Interesting. I guess when the auditorium was built in the 30s or something time around then, wasn't it? Or? Yeah, the the main the main auditorium was in the late 30s and then the other the lecture the, hall. Yeah, the smaller one was added in the 60s, but which if you've ever looked at its crazy lighting panel back there is it's very obvious it's from the <laughs> 60s because it looks like something from 2001. Like it's like I'm sure high end technology for the day, yeah. but it is like so hilariously like weird and <laughs> chunky and like, you know, just all these switches and levers and like knobs and things. Enterprise so, control panel. It kind of. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very like that. Well, I thought we could uh, normally we we go into the gallery to look at something on the show but i thought since we're talking about the archives uh if you don't mind taking me down to the archives and we'll look at some stuff there yep i'd love to awesome thanks 
um, we are now in the archives and um, you've pulled out some stuff to look at. And I'm assuming this this is original floor plans here? Yes, this is uh, the original first floor plan for the original museum building, which opened in 1886 um, by James McLaughlin. You can see his signature down there. But mm-hmm. this was the extent of the museum at that, at that time. It was two floors. Ground floor was... Um, sculpture gallery and the main entrance hall which was also full of sculpture most of which were casts at the time sure um first floor uh second floor was the painting galleries okay um but you know almost as soon as this building opened they were complaining about lack of space so sure. it's, not, it's not something that's a recent development no it's it's like the eternal museum complaint <laughs> i think at all museums everywhere um so yeah this is really interesting i the thing i'm most excited about is just to see ticket office and coat room like where they are which is like basically where elevators and stairs are now mm-hmm. if i'm yeah. not mistaken today when you, the main entrance um is where you pass into the Cincinnati wing mm-hmm. from the from the main the museum Great Hall, so that you can just see some elements of that original yeah. entrance as you pass that were exposed um, during the renovation of the wing back in the nineties. But yeah, where where the ticket office is, I think there's I think there's restrooms there now. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Those would be you're right. Those would be restrooms because the elevators and stairs I'm thinking of are here in yeah, front of the stairs. Out, yeah. yeah. You're right. Yeah, I was mistaken. Yeah, because. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of where those you can actually see. It's kind of funny because even on this little drawing, you can see those little columns, mm-hmm. this little circles of those double columns that are on that archway. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's like pretty, pretty easy to identify. The other room over here, the fountain room is kind of looks remarkably similar to like with the w- two windows there. I guess there's more windows that are closed off, probably, it yeah. looks like. And these two galleries, too. It's kind of crazy how much this looks exactly alike in some ways yeah the central sort of artery then was the sculpture gallery that's now where the miro miro hangs yeah. and on the on one side there are galleries and on the other side is where the cafe is mm-hmm. today that was that was open at the time and it was an additional sort of that space was filled in and in, in the early 20th century and turned into galleries and underneath there is where the the cobbled courtyard that we were talking about oh, down right. in the basement is that that's yeah. what covered that. Oh, okay. That makes and sense. there's the the stack, the one of the museum's sort of one of the few things you can still sort of see of the original museum right. building. Right. Um which was originally for it was a, a smokestack for the for the museum's coal-fired boilers until the 1940s. You know, when those were taken out it just purely became sort of decorative. Hmm. It doesn't serve any any function anymore other than to be Kind of, you yeah. Know, one of our noticeable features from the <laughs> right, you know, and of course back then the steps up to the second floor on the opposite side of the hall yeah. to where they are now. Yeah. Um, when they added on the Schmidlap wing back in 1907, they demolished the original staircase to to create the opening for the for the gallery that runs from the great hall um and the stairs were rebuilt to create a create an archway over the over the entry to the wing and that um and that's where they stayed until the 1940s and that's when at that point the staircase was demolished the uh great hall was a floor was put in to separate it into two levels mm-hmm. and it was turned into gallery space so for a long time there was no great hall there was no staircase right until it was reintroduced in the 90s in the big renovations at that point so today the staircase is on completely the opposite side of the hall to where it was originally yeah so in the in the archives we've got it's a mixture really the the most the main part is obviously the museum's records so Mm -hmm. kind of it's day-to-day operational records blueprints like the one we've just been with the one we've just been looking at um correspondence from the director and Mm -hmm. exhibition records uh photographs um, we also have, as I mentioned, records from the Art Academy of Cincinnati. The majority of what we have is um, dates from the very early time when it was the McMicken School, so from the 18, 1870s onwards through to sort of round about the 1950s. And we've also got the third part of the archives are the Cincinnati Art and Artists Collection. So it's a it's a mixture, really, of um, 
material that has been been collected by the museum over the years relating to local artists and collections that um, of the original papers of artists that have been donated to us. Mm. So we're a great resource for anybody who's trying to research a, a Cincinnati artist. We've got artist files for, you know, we've got hundreds of boxes of artist files. So, you yeah. know, someone like Frank Duvenet, we've got... Many, many, many. Many, many boxes. <laughs> right. Others, other people, we may only have one clipping, for example. Right. But, you know, if you're looking for somebody who has any connection to this part of the world, mm-hmm. get in touch and we might have something. And we're always adding new material as well. So yeah. we're still collecting nowadays. Yeah. Well, did you have anything else under here to look at? These are from the Art Academy of Cincinnati collection oh, okay. in the archives. So a large part of that is photographs of students and faculty members. Um, we've got photographs going back to the late 19th century, you know, through to the 60s, 70s. Um, it's interesting to see how the, you know, how the students change over the years. Yeah, these ladies, this, this photo we're looking at, there's this group of women who are all uh, doing like a plein air painting. And they are, I mean, they appear to be dressed like to us at least looks very like well dressed for what you would think you would wear to go painting. Maybe they maybe they warned them that there were going to be photographs taken that day. That's and true. Maybe yeah. told them to put on their best hats. But yeah, yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, this lady it looks like she has some sort of covering maybe to protect her. She's mm-hmm. and she is uh, painting uh, right now. Where maybe the others look like they're maybe still sketching or, or something. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Like she's doing the dirtier work, so she's <laughs> she's covered up a little bit better. Um, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, these hats, so, you know, everyone's got like a big fancy hat on and we'll link uh, to these. We'll have links to these images on the website, uh, uh, which is CincinnatiArtMuseum.org uh, slash podcast. And it will be right below this episode's player. But yeah, there are some great shots from this period of, you know, classes in action. And this this one is this one is from this is one of the few that I can actually date precisely 1896 showing. Thomas Noble, who was the first the first director of the academy yeah. and his class. Um, you can't really see it on the original photo, but if you zoom in, you can just make out the date of 1896 hanging, sort of painted onto the palette that's hanging in the background. So oh, okay. most of these, it's just kind of, we have to take a guess at the date, but this one is one of the few that we can actually say it was taken in a specific year. Did students also model because I'm just guessing this guy down here who's mostly naked with a clarinet or whatever <laughs> is probably a model. I've never seen anything that said the students modeled. Yeah. Um, they, I, they seem to have been usually recruited in specifically, yeah. but I don't know if, it just seems if they modeled for each other. It just seems odd that you would take a photo with the model. That's like the only reason I'm asking, just because mm. it seems a little personal for like something that is usually like, Usually you're just hired somebody to be a model and you don't say like, oh, jump in the group photo. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm not sure. <laughs> so that's why I was curious about it, just because it seemed a little odd. But maybe, I mean, maybe he was modeling every day with them and they just were like, you're one of the gang. Yeah, you know, yeah, who knows? Um, it's possible. Now, I couldn't help but notice um, that you this class is entirely men and this class seems to be entirely women. Were, were classes segregated like that between this between the genders or...? On the whole, I don't think so. I mm-hmm. think um, maybe life modeling classes right. were split by gender, but I don't think the sort of general classes necessarily okay. were. Yeah. But maybe they just kind of split that way coincidentally. Yeah. But I don't think there were. I don't think there were actual restrictions. You okay. Know, se- segregating the, um, men from the women across the board. Mm. It's. Ju- but it. You know. That just seems to be the way it fell somehow. yeah yeah i wouldn't be surprised if you're right if like life drawing classes had some sort of propriety built in where <laughs> like okay you know this th- that makes sense some of some of the um some of our archival materials are currently part of the art academy 150 yeah i was gonna say i exhibition. think I, I remember definitely seeing this image in the middle here um published uh with with materials around the 150th anniversary mm-hmm. we helped a lot with you know the the, the academy's preparations for their celebrations and um some of these materials like you say are part of the exhibition that's currently going on here at the art museum including this photo 
from the of the faculty in the 1960s. So yeah. Herbert Barnett was the dean at that point. Standing by, behind him is Charlie Harper. Oh, okay. Um, Arthur Helwig, Paul Chidlaw, Charles Cutler. This guy here at the front, the older gentleman, is, is Fritz Van Houten Raymond. Who was oh. the? He taught photography at that point, but he was—he'd been working for the museum since the 1900s. He was—he was our first photographer, so he took a lot of the photographs, um, early photographs of the museum. How common was that? For, I'm guessing there probably was a lot more overlap of people sort of doing work for both institutions. Is that pretty normal? Do you think? Or? Oh, yeah, I think I think so. I think you know it was pretty—you know—people would just go backwards and forwards. A lot of our, a lot of the. Um, Faculty uh, at the Art Academy were the original museum curators. Right. Um, there were no sort of full-time curators until the 30s. Um, prior to that, it, you know, Clement Barnhorn, who taught sculpture at the Art Academy, he was our honorary sculpture curator. Oh, okay. And Lewis Meekin was the honorary curator of paintings. They just kind of, they, it was something they did you know, right. Out of the goodness of their heart for the museum, basically. Interesting. So, so it was like the, the museum was their, uh, just like a, a side hustle, basically. Yeah, like the, yeah. the school was really their full-time job more. Our first print curator was a guy by the name of Her- Herbert Greer French. And uh-huh. he, was, he didn't work at the academy, but he was a local collector. He was, you know, an important print collector. And, you know, where they couldn't find somebody on the faculty staff to... To help out, they would, you know, recruit local yeah. collectors in to, you know, help curate the collections. I like this photograph particularly because shortly after the um, exhibition opened, I got a, an email from a lady mm-hmm. who'd been to visit with her mother, and her mother turned out to be this lady sitting in the, the center, f- in the front, in the front row. Wow. Um, I had no idea who she was. I knew the name. She was called Carol Stroob, but I couldn't find any record of what she actually did at the Art Academy. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I'll put the name on the, in the, you know, in the caption, but I couldn't figure out what her role was. But so when I got an email from the, from her daughter saying, we were really so excited to see the photograph of my mother in the exhibition. Um, I was very excited to get that as well and said, so can you tell me a bit about her and what she did? And it turns out she was secretary to Dean Herbert Barnett. Um, She came in a couple of weeks ago and we spent a couple of hours chatting and looking through some of this material, some of the letters that she, you know, typed up for the Dean at the time and telling me some of the stories about, you know, about Charles Cutler and some of the wild antics that went on at the academy in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, But yeah, and that is the one mistake that I know of in the book so far, is the spelling of her name. Oh. Because it was spelt wrong on the back of the photograph, but now I know how to yeah. how it should be spelt. <laughs> so hopefully when it's reprinted, it'll be corrected. Oh, well that's <laughs> yeah. So what else, what else are we looking at over here? So we've got... These are some examples of some of the student records that we have from the Art Academy. Um, these are Charlie Harper's original application cards to come to the Academy. Oh, wow. So we've got those that stretch back to the 1870s. So um, I didn't realize he came from West Virginia. And Obviously, he went from being a, a student to a faculty member. So we've got, we've got records from his time as a student and as a faculty member as well. So... I pulled out this. This is a 35 millimeter film print of a of a uh, a documentary that was done in 1971. Okay. It was about the museum collection. It was hosted by then director Philip Adams, and it's called Art Palace of the West. Oh. Because of course, Art Palace of the West is you know it's one of those phrases that seems to have been around since time immemorial. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, but as it happens, this is the earliest mention of Art Palace of the West that I've been able to really? verify. That's, so that's the oldest uh, record of it that we know of. Yeah, but it's one of those things that was supposedly said in the press at the time yeah. the, museum, the museum opened in 1886, but nobody's ever been able to find the exact source <laughs> of that quote. Right. Um, I 
I did some research when I was writing the book. Yeah. And I found a file of research that, you know, one of my predecessors has also done trying to figure out where this nickname came from. Yeah. But, but nobody's been able to find exactly that. They were kind of similar, you know, similar turns of phrase, uh, an imperishable palace of art and things like that. Hmm. But nothing ever quite the same as Art Palace of the West. So it kind of really became popularized after the the Centennial Exhibition, which was also called Art Palace of the West. And ever uh, since then, it's become, become part of the museum's kind of, you know, image. Hmm. And it's always quoted in press releases right. and, you know, histories of the museum. But can't find it before the 1970s. So, I, you know, I wonder if it was just a nice turn of phrase that Philip Adams came up with. Because he was quite, you know, he was quite a character. He was quite a, a wordsmith. And I can kind of imagine him casting around for, you know, a catchy title. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe he just sort of tweaked something that he found or I like that though. Like he's maybe inventing a bit of a legend. Yeah. Maybe. I, I mean we don't know, but that's I would love to find out where it came from if you know we've got scrapbooks <laughs> here of clippings that go back to the eighteen eighties and it doesn't appear in any of those. So um it just suddenly seems to have sprung into being. So it does seem the only thing that makes me seem it seems a little bizarre if if he did invent it in in as late as the seventies is that would he have still been thinking of Cincinnati as the West? You know, that's the that's only thing. True. It seems like such an archaic idea. It, yeah, that is true. I was wondering about that. It suggests sort of maybe suggested it was coined somewhere. I, in the past yeah i mean it does somewhere further east it does seem it does seem like i mean maybe that's if if you were inventing a legend in that way it's i guess it's an extra extra good job at doing it because because it's uh it does seem like that's one of the things i've always loved about that expression is just like the west you know like it's so funny nobody today would ever think of cincinnati (laughs) as the west like it's not i mean you know it's the midwest but it's certainly not the west and so it, it 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 definitely conjures a time mm-hmm. of ver- of the of the country's very early days too. Yeah, so you know, perhaps perhaps there is a genuine, you know, perhaps there's an article out there somewhere where it appears, but unfortunately nobody seems to have hmm. made a note of that. The major benefactor of the museum that actually enabled it to go ahead was Charles West. So you do see it referred to as <laughs> West's Art Museum occasionally. Hmm. So you know, maybe there's, you know, maybe that is part of it as well. Interesting. It's, yeah, it's it's an interesting little story, and I'd, I'd like to try and trace it one day, but yeah, for the moment, it remains a bit of a mystery. Interesting. Um, talking of the opening of the museum, we've got a lot of materials that, you know, go back that far. This is our first first minute book of the the um, board of trustees. So it starts with a copy of our articles of incorporation. Um, from 1881, and then it goes through into the minutes of the the, um, trustees, into their sort of discussions on the creation of the museum and how it's going to be put together and formed and um, where it's going to be. What were some other places we could have ended up? Eden Park was one of the contenders, Washington Park as well, and Burnett Woods. um, They were all possibilities. Mm. I think Eden Park was Charles West's favored location and as he he was the one who put up most of the money for the building so uh, i guess he had a, <laughs> he had a you know a deciding vote on that but i mean it is interesting to think how different it would be if we were downtown you know mm-hmm. that that is an interesting uh question and i mean obviously had we ended up in washington park being so close to music hall could have been really interesting mm-hmm. too for us but expanding would have been very difficult yeah. there too it's it's so it's it's a really interesting alternate history to try mm-hmm. to like imagine i think w- one of the you know one of the reasons we ended up up here was because up here in the park we were above the sort right. of growing pollution that the city was suffering with at the time so this was kind of like you know it was a breath of fresh air to come up here and be out of the way well and it is i mean it is a nice thing about mm-hmm. being i mean it, as a as two people who drive to work every morning in here. It's like, I really like going to the, I mean, it's very nice place to visit too. Mm -hmm. So there is a benefit of it as well. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's in a beautiful location. You can also say like, well, it's, it's, there is something very poetic about the idea of this museum in a park as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sort of come and contemplate the art in a nice kind of serene space and not be part of the hustle and bustle of the city. I think that was part of the, part of the thought. 
one of the one of the um, most interesting collections amongst the museum's records are the uh, the correspondence that came in and went out of the director's office in the early days. Yeah. And um, we've got 70-odd boxes of letters that were um, sent and received by the director's office. Um, they're a real sort of interesting snapshot of the times of the operation of the museum and the kind of things that were going on in those days. Um, Can I ask a totally stupid question? Yeah. Did somebody just hand write another copy like what did they do for the, the one they sent like the outgoing correspondence they're all it's kind of like a um a carbon copy of oh, the okay. originals they're all bound now into big volumes and these these carbon copies were are on incredibly thin sort of yeah. onion skin paper and they're really fragile so um luckily we've got them all microfilmed right so we don't have to go back to the original volumes too often right right um, but yeah they're very fragile but so yeah they, there was basically a copy of every letter that was sent but th- these letters um the director's correspondence contains the minutiae of the operation of the museum which is quite interesting to look into you get people writing offering the director you know offers of mummified cats or a gun that had been used as part of the Hatfield McCoy feud was one thing that sticks out in my mm. mind. A part of a ship's wheel that had been destroyed in a in an explosion, and it was still still had traces of blood on it. And so, people, you know, people were keen to to give us stuff, but not necessarily what we always wanted. the stuff that we wanted. Yeah, the, those early days of the museum, it's like people were still trying to figure out what exactly yeah. we were and what we collected. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, they were keen to sort of make it a museum of everything. You know, we had right. like fossilized tree trunks at one point and sort of, you know, stone tools and that sort of thing, Some of, most of which have been, you know, transferred to mm-hmm. more appropriate institutions yeah. since. But, you yeah, know, back in like, the early days, it was, let's just, you know, let's get a bit of everything and right. we'll, we'll see where it goes. It can be very easy to think that, um, to get seduced into to thinking like the way the museum has done things in your lifetime is just the way a museum has always been. But then uh, when I see pictures of, you know, the Great Hall f- just stuffed full of like plaster sculptures mm-hmm. and stuff, it's kind of like, well, this was never sacred, was it really? <laughs> like, I mean, in even just the way stuff is hung sometimes looks absolutely bananas to us. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I, 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 I love those early photos of the Great Hall where it's, you know, there's sort of contemporary there's genuine sculpture genuine contemporary sculpture or mixed in with casts of classical pieces all this kind of it looks kind of scattered randomly and it's like okay how what was it like to try and make your way through this space and it looks absolutely insane like i mean just the the way it's it's displayed but then i feel like you know there are sometimes if you go to older museums um that are maybe locked into those traditions like I don't know. I mean, I think there's parts of the Louvre that kind of look like that mm-hmm. still. That's a little bit like, all right, we got a room, fill it with sculpture. <laughs> these letters, the, the other thing these letters just make me think about is like, how beautiful people wrote. Like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if I've seen anyone with handwriting like this. No, that's the thing that anybody who looks through any of these goes, they just remark. They, you know, they remark on the handwriting, how how immaculate it all is. The, this, min, the minute books are all, you know, handwritten, obviously, yeah. beautifully written in this purple ink. All the correspondence, handwritten. It's beautiful. I mean, this, yeah, this one to Goshorn is just uh, unbelievable, mm-hmm. like, how precise it looks. Well, this one is from, from pr- the president, mm-hmm. from Grover Cleveland, politely declining the invitation to attend the museum opening oh but ouch but then (laughs) but then we go from something like that the the, you know this official correspondence to this um which is a letter that somebody wrote on behalf of their daughter seeing if you know if there was a position for her at the museum that she might be able to you know might be a good fit for Mm -hmm. um from a mrs mrs hardacre of walnut hills there's also um there's a lot of correspondence with you know locally and nationally important artists amongst okay. that collection so it's that's one of the um you know it's one of the stars of the archives we used to have the annual exhibition of uh, american art each year mm-hmm. um from the you know late 19th century and into the 20th century and lots of you know well-known artists would submit works for that so we've got you know letters 
um, from Whistler oh, wow. and um, Rockwell and, you know, a lot of big names are represented there. So, you know, it's a real mixture, that collection of kind of the day-to-day deliveries of coal and, you know, right. <laughs> equipment and that sort of thing mixed in with these, you know, letters from major artists. Thank you uh, for showing me this stuff and, and the stuff about the Art Academy, especially because uh, we've only got about a week left to check out that exhibition. So if anyone's interested in seeing more things about the Art Academy's past, um, this will be a great way to connect it with the with the exhibition upstairs uh, they can check out. Well, mm-hmm. it's always fun to poke around old uh, files and records and things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just it's it feels there's something about it that feels sort of adventurous, uh, doesn't it? I guess that's why yeah. you got into it, right? Yeah, I mean, you it's kind of a great job if you're a bit of a kind of bit nosy because you get to kind of look at you get to look at a lot of stuff that other people don't see, can't see. Um, you get a, a peek behind the scenes. Um, it's a, it's it's fascinating. You never quite know what you're going to find when you open one of these boxes. It, you know, it looks, it can seem pretty innocuous, but then, you know, you'll pull out a letter from the president or you'll pull out some photograph of some part of the museum you've never seen before. And it's always, it's always a treat. Yeah. I should just say that the archives are available um, for the public to see mm-hmm. um, if they, if there's anything that they think they might be interested in, just get in touch with the library. Um, we ask people make an appointment before coming along to see it mm-hmm. so we can, you know, we can pull out what might be relevant to somebody's research yeah. inquiries. But yeah, the, the archives are available for the public, for researchers. So just get in touch if, if you think there might be something amongst all of this that you would help your research and you might be interested in seeing. Well, thank you, Jeff, for showing me all of these cool things and uh, bringing me down to the archives. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Paris 1900, City of Entertainment, Giorgione's La Vecchia, and you only have until April 28th to see Art Academy of Cincinnati at 150, a celebration in drawings and prints. Opening April 26th is Phase 1 of No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man. Join us Saturday, May 4th, for a Family First Saturday that celebrates The Art of Burning Man and also for the opening of our newest installation in the Rosenthal Education Center, featuring interactive art from artist-in-residence Pam Kravitz. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofran Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, if you liked what you heard today, why don't you write us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.